Sometimes sermon writing is easy, other times it is difficult. My typical practice is to plan out a range of scriptures that I believe I'm to preach across and then spend time considering them over a several week period. Usually by the time I get to Tuesday morning, I've spent enough time with the scripture that I pretty much understand where it needs to go. And then I think and pray about the best way to apply these truths to the congregation. And usually by Thursday or Friday, I have an idea of what I need to be saying and uh, things come together relatively easy. But there are other times when the process is a struggle, when it's difficult. And I'm never completely sure why that's true. And it may just be that that is true because the Lord has more to say to me than he does to you on a given Sunday. It's possible. And this may be one of those Sundays. This is one of the weeks where I've paced the halls here praying and said, Lord, you'll have to help me with this. And maybe that's true for you as well once you hear it. That's between you and the Holy Spirit this morning. I'd like to uh, direct your attention to John 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. This is John 7, 37. Would you stand for the reading of the Gospel, please? On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted, All who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scriptures said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. Jesus said this concerning the Spirit. Those who believed in him would soon receive the Spirit but they hadn't experienced the Spirit yet since Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I've spent some days now captivated by this living water language. Jesus clearly identifies it here as the gift of the Spirit. Never be thirsty again. I, th I, think, I think this living water idea, this never thirst again kind of thing is, is a definition of satisfied. Satisfied. You remember the story from last Sunday, perhaps. Jesus meets a woman at the well. He asks her for something to drink. She's surprised that he would ask her, and then he responds to her. This is John 4.10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Those are the words of Jesus as we have them. Jesus is saying very obviously 
This living water satisfies. It satisfies. And so I have to ask the question, am I living a satisfied life? And that's why I've been thinking about living water. That's the question, really. Am I living a satisfied life? And I guess it leads me to other questions, like, why do I and many that I know long for a fresh taste of living water, even though I know the Spirit lives in me? What is it that has me longing for a fresh taste of living water? I mean, shouldn't I be experiencing this joy that living water brings? Why am I so often not satisfied? And so I have been ruminating on that these past couple weeks. And I'm not sure that the list I have this morning is exhaustive. There may be other reasons why satisfaction is so elusive. And it may be that our lack of satisfaction results from a combination of several things. It may not just be one of these, it may be two or three or all of them or some I have not even thought of yet. But let me give this a try this morning. I think there are at least three basic reasons that I might not be, that we might not be experiencing the satisfaction I could be enjoying that is promised to me within my relationship with Jesus Christ and the infilling of his Holy Spirit. The first is, I am afraid that at times we have forgotten the basis of our salvation. I'm afraid that sometimes we have forgotten how we manage to become saved. You know, but may need to be reminded that we are saved by grace, right? You and I, we didn't deserve it, and we still don't. We didn't earn it. I can't boast that I obtained it because it wasn't my doing. I mean, we understand that grace means unmerited favor, right? Favor we didn't deserve. So by any measurement, we have been gifted something we did nothing to deserve and do not deserve. The fact that God reached out and included us is a miraculous expression of his grace. And we can't ever allow ourselves to forget that for a moment. This is what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. We were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We should be celebrating that continually that God in his mercy reached out to us and did something we could not do for ourselves and included us, made room for us in his kingdom. 
The passage goes on, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. You got something you didn't deserve, and this should be an anchor of joy for us, an anchor of hope and gratitude for the rest of our lives. You should celebrate this fact every day. When we didn't deserve it, God included us. What a gracious God. And yet I have the suspicion that after we've lived in the kingdom for a while, after we've lived in the community of faith for a while, we start to take the grace of God for granted. I guess I mean something like this. The transforming work of God begins to actually have an effect on us. And we don't act the way we used to act anymore. We start to care for others. We go to church. We give our tithes. We serve in the nursery or the church board, whichever seems more difficult. And we start to think that maybe we deserve a little bit of recognition in the kingdom of God. I mean, look at all we've done. We deserve to be included. And sooner or later, we begin to forget that our standing in the kingdom of God is always and only by grace. Always. It's not based on anything we did, are doing, or will do. Occasionally, I will have a person start to remind me of all that they've done for the church. I try to listen to this patiently. The truth of the matter is this. Neither you nor I will ever do enough to be included in the kingdom of God. Anything we've ever done has been granted to us by virtue of the opportunities that God gives us to serve. That's it. It wasn't your good works that got you into the kingdom, and it isn't your good works that keep you in the kingdom. There's no special standing in this kingdom. We are all here by grace, by the unmerited favor of God. The minute you start to think you deserve to be here, the minute you think you should be calling the shots or exerting greater influence or, or people should defer to your opinion, or as soon as you start that pathway, some of your joy starts to slip away. It just does. Your sense of wonder that God included you slips away. The living water isn't enough anymore. You want living water plus, living water plus recognition, or living water plus status, or living water plus get your own way, or, or you want living water plus whatever it is you want. I think Christians today are especially susceptible to this. We are so used to having everything customized to our own specifications that we get cranky when we're told that someone else is in charge or that someone else is the boss. 
And then when you add to the fact that we are democratic, independent Americans who believe that we are free to make up our own minds and do whatever we want, well, if anyone would infringe on our freedom, we just simply revolt because, you know, at some level we're all New Hampshireans, live free or die. But the truth of the gospel is the kingdom of God has never been a democracy. It is a monarchy. And Jesus is the king. And Jesus has already died to free us from one slave master. But then we are born into another kingdom. I mean, all you have to do is read Romans 6 and 20, right? When you were slaves of sin, you didn't have to respond to righteousness. So what fruit did you gain from the things of which you are now ashamed back in your old way of life? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin, you are enslaved to God. The fruit you have now leads to sanctification, and the end is eternal life. You're going to serve one master or another. You'll either serve sin, or you will serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Those are the only two choices we have. But we keep thinking that there's a third way here. And it's the way of putting ourselves on the throne and making ourselves king and determining that we ought to and should be in charge. And we forget that our standing in the kingdom of God is based on grace. And there is a king to whom we must be obedient. And the, what does that old hymn say? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If you will not obey the king, kiss joy goodbye. You can't be joyful in the kingdom of God and live in disobedience to the king. It can't work. And so our joy slips away proportionally to our level of disobedience. Until you can be happy joyful, serving a gracious, benevolent, omnipotent monarch. You can never be joyful, joyful in the kingdom of God. I think there's a second thing that can keep us from experiencing joy, the joy of having living water flow out of our lives. I think it is so easy for us to embrace and get fixated on specific expectations. Expectations of Christ, expectations of the church, expectations of church leaders. And when those expectations are not met, we resort to complaining, grumbling, grouching, all of which can lead to a loss of joy. We would prefer a Christian experience that doesn't include any suffering that doesn't include taking any hard positions, that doesn't force us into difficult decisions. And the more we focus our attention on the unmet expectations that we have, and the more we watch on Facebook what other people have received or earned, the more we descend into unhealthy comparisons and the more we experience frustration at not getting what we want. And I think problem here is that often we have inappropriate goals and inappropriate expectations. 
This is Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I, I talked about this idea of unfortunate expectations, these expectations that we will never have any difficulty or sorrow or suffering in lives. I talked about this with my friend Dave Mullen. So Dave Mullen is the, was the just retired pastor of Church of the Living God and a friend of mine for a decade or so. And we, we talked about this a little bit. If you know anything about his story, you know that he has wrestled with very serious and life-threatening health issues for most of the last 40 years. And God has mercifully sustained him and enabled him to do the things that he needed to do, but not without a great deal of suffering. And I said to him just a couple of days ago, I said, how do you maintain joy in the middle of very difficult suffering? How do you do that? How's that possible? He said, first off, you've got to keep your mind on heavenly things. You just do. You have to look at things from a God perspective. If every time you see suffering, all you can see is the suffering and not the good that God could possibly bring from this situation, if you can't ever see what God is doing through difficult times, you never manage to get past the pain of the suffering. But we know that God takes all of our suffering and our sorrow, and he can work through those things to bring about Amazing stuff, if we will keep our eyes fixed on heaven. If we will keep our eyes fixed on the Father who's working through all kinds of difficult stuff. But if we can't look above, and our eyes are always focused down, we are always going to be disappointed. He said another thing that was really insightful for me. He said, I also made some decisions many years ago. The first was, I may experience sickness, but I won't allow sickness to have me. Do you understand what he's saying? I may get sick, but I'm not letting sickness have me. He says, I may have sorrow in my life, but I will not allow sorrow to have me. I will not be defined by either my sickness or my sorrow I will be defined as a child of God who is in his merciful, gracious, and benevolent care. That changes stuff, doesn't it? Doesn't that change things? If we expect the Christian life to be free of sorrow, we will be disappointed. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to either wallow in our sorrow or allow sorrow to become our identity. If we expect the Christian life to be free of suffering, we will be disappointed. I mean gracious. The scriptures actually promise that we will have suffering in our lives. How can we expect not to have any? We just skip those verses and pray they don't apply to us and apply to somebody else. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to allow suffering to define us because we will always be more than our suffering We are children of God. When our expectations are not met, we tend to forget 
that we've already received far more than we ever deserved. And then our joy slips away and we end up dissatisfied, complaining. So Paul reminds us, set your minds on the things that are above. Worship the one who included you against all odds, against your deserving. I think there's at least one other reason why we lose the joy of our salvation. We have, most of us, experienced the forgiveness of our sins. We have felt the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we are so much changed by the work of the Spirit and our cooperation with Him that we think now, at this point of our life, we can just turn on the cruise control and coast along by the Spirit. I mean, we're keeping the commandments. We're not stealing anymore, not cursing, not telling lies, certainly not killing anyone. We attend worship most days. Once in a while, we do something good for the neighbor. Compared to who I used to be, I'm a saint. Surely God can't expect any more from me. Hey, I even attended a couple of the spiritual deepening week services. And we get, when we get to the place where we are self-satisfied, however that happens, we're in danger. Once we are self-satisfied, and that means satisfied that we're meeting every reasonable expectation, then really our enemy can start to relax about us. When our goal is to please ourselves, we, we start the process of rationalization. I'm doing all these things, I can't be expected to do one other thing, or everyone tells a little bit of gossip now and again, or I don't really need to go overboard in helping my neighbor, I don't want them to rely on me. When we make ourselves the judges of our Christian performance, we are in trouble. I mean, you understand, whenever humans make comparisons, whenever we start to compare ourselves against someone else, we always choose someone we know is performing less than we are, right? We, we rig the test before it ever starts. I'm at least not as bad as this person, and so I must be okay, right? But we forget that we're all here by grace again, right? And we, we get lost in the comparisons, we try to feel good about ourselves by rationalizing, but the Spirit of God doesn't play that game. If we're gonna make comparisons, I mean, if, were you here the night that Pastor Metcalf said, if we're gonna make comparisons, we need to make them at the end of Matthew 5 and verse 48, where he says, um, be perfect in loving the way your Father is perfect in loving. There's the comparison to make, right? Don't, don't pick the person you know isn't performing as well as you are. Pick the one who calls you higher, who calls you onward, who enables you by your spirit to be more than you are. Because that's the place of joy. There's no joy in comparis comparisons with others. The game's rigged. But there is joy in being enabled by the spirit to do more than you're capable of doing. Once we're self-satisfied with our performance, all kinds of subtle sins have a way of slipping in. 
when we rationalize our critical spirit, our judgmental attitude, our pride or our arrogance, it's no surprise that we lose the joy of our salvation. We need a fresh touch from the Spirit. We need another swig from the well of living water. I need to fix my eyes on the things that are eternal, heavenly things. I need to tie my expectations to the fact that I really don't deserve anything and everything I have is a gift from a sovereign God. I need to forsake self-satisfaction and repent of any compromises I have made in order to know the joy of the Lord again, to release the flow of living water back into my heart again. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I'm assuming most of you have, but if you've taken a, a walk on some of the walking trails around here, especially those that run by streams, it's, it's not surprising to see litter in the stream. There's, you know, a, a tide bottle floating caught in some of the twigs and six or seven white plastic shopping bags and other things. And um, if those never get cleaned up, they catch other stuff, you know. And before you know it, the whole stream is clogged with debris and trash. And it's disgusting. Maybe we overlook a little bag or a little... But, but this always catches other debris. And before you know it, in a really difficult place. After King David was in one of those difficult places, he prayed this, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. I invite you this morning to refocus on the eternal, the things above, to refocus on the grace of God that included you and me. I'm going to ask Aaron to come and sing a closing song for us. And as the band plays and sings, you're welcome to sing with them. But it may be that your prayer needs to be, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that one of these things I've said or something else the Holy Spirit might have been saying lingers in your heart and you need to give it some thought and attention. And you want to spend a little time praying and considering this morning. So I'm going to invite you to do that while we sing. I'm going to come sit down here in the first row. 
And of course, as always, if you would like to kneel at the altar while we do that praying, you're always welcome to come. If you want someone to pray with you at the altar, just tap me on the head on your way by and I'll join you. But let's, let's take some time to think and consider and listen to the voice of the Spirit this morning. desperately want you to know the joy of life with Jesus. I want you to be filled with confidence that he is your hope, that he has a future for you, that he will be with you. And I want that to bring great joy into your life. But I know 
there's a price to be paid for joy. And it's the price of obedience. It's the the price of attentiveness. It's the price of consistency in our walk with Christ, remembering all the time that we're in the kingdom by the grace of God alone. And so I pray, may the joy of the Lord be yours in fullness. May you walk in his ways and may you know satisfaction in his service to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.